from studios of KPFA in Berkeley, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. Ever since a fishmonger was crushed to death in November of 2016 by a garbage compactor in Al Husayma, the northern reef region of Morocco has been the scene of social unrest and protest against the Moroccan government a movement that has been spreading to other parts of the country over the past two years. The demands are actually quite basic. The demands should be read in, in light of the regional history and politics, uh, which, as you already mentioned, marginalized and I would say purposely de-developed for a long time since independence and People have faced difficulties in terms of employment, education, basic facilities, healthcare, etc. So the demands were kind of focusing on the social economic conditions. This week we get an update on the protest movement in Morocco with Moroccan anthropologist Miriam Awraq. Bay Area-based activist and after-school teacher Heather Lamastro talks with us about her pen pal project connecting kids in the Bay Area with kids in the Gaza Strip, and also about her humanitarian visit to the besieged Gaza Strip. Stay with us. Ever since a fishmonger was crushed to death in November 2016 by a garbage compactor in Al Husayma, the northern reef region of Morocco has been the scene of social unrest and protest against the Moroccan government, a movement that has been spreading to other parts of Morocco over the past two years. Maryam Awrag Asfar, senior lecturer at the University of, of Westminster in London, has been researching the issue and interviewing people on the ground. Khalil spoke with her in Amsterdam upon her return from the reef. Welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, Miriam Asfar. It's great to have you with us today. Since last time we talked, which was eight months ago, has any progress been made? Are the Moroccan authorities listening to the popular demands or are we still in the same basic situation we were a few months ago? A lot has happened. As you may be aware and maybe as a sort of recap, a large group of activists who are considered somehow the cater of the organizers uh, in Al Husayma and beyond in the reef were arrested on very suspicious charges, among them the famous Nasser Zafzafi. It has been a cruel year for uh, the activists. The punishments and repercussions were very harsh and it had been very tense because there weren't any trials. So a lot of the protests continued and turned into protests for demands for the release of the political prisoners. In the meantime, there has been a series of trials and it created an, an enormous shock because while everybody sort of thought or hoped and anyone with a rational mind or understanding of the legal system, broadly speaking, would have expected them to be released because there really was no serious charge except for going out and protesting. The result was uh, the opposite. The trials were like a show process and the sort of the uh, prisoners were given between 10 to 20 years, which really, I think, caused a ripple in society. The anger multiplied, actually, by that. The government system uh, probably thought that it would sort of 
you know, close off the situation and, and, and this sort of chapter in the current history, but it actually intensified the anger and the protest. We're talking about the court in Casablanca that sentenced 39 people, including Nasser Zafzafi. To, yeah, term, so, to terms I mean, of up to 20 years in jail. Exactly. And of course, I mean, the people that we know mostly, the visible people are talked about or written about, but the number is much larger. So I mean, around 300 people have been arrested. The last development was that people had expected the king to uh, do his annual speech around the Eid al-Adha. Al the major and, Muslim holiday, uh, the second exactly. major, yes. Which is often an occasion to also offer amnesty or all kinds of different, you know. Uh, that didn't happen, but then, um, or the Eid al-Ash, the King's Day uh, speech, people also expected uh, but then finally, one of the major king speeches, he actually went to Al Husayma to give a speech, which was quite unique. Al Husayma uh, is this small town in in a region that's been largely marginalized in Morocco in the north. The birthplace of the protest. It's where Mohsin Fikri was killed. Who whose death was sparked the major protest. So it's been all a repression so far, no no carrot, all stick? The carrot was, so in one of the speeches, finally the king announced an amnesty for about 180 prisoners, 188, I think. But among, so very important, of course, and for all those hundreds of people, relatives, friends, spouses, it, was a major thing and we were all very happy with for them but there was at the same time a terrible sadness because the you could say the core group or the cater among them of Zafi were not given amnesty and their sentencing uh, was upheld um, so people are still facing the prospect of rotting away in prison based in, uh, in Morocco. So, so that is the latest major development. So why don't you remind us the, the central demands? You said that the, the whole protest movement was triggered by the death of this fishmonger who was just trying mm -hmm. to make a, a living and who was whose catch was confiscated and tossed. Mm -hmm. And his death provoked this movement. What are some of the central demands, other than now the release of the protesters? The demands are actually quite basic. The demands should be read in, in light of the regional history and politics, uh, which, as you already mentioned, marginalized and, I would say, purposely de-developed for a long time since independence and People have faced difficulties in terms of employment, education, basic facilities, healthcare, etc. So the demands were kind of focusing on the social economic conditions. So the demands were a proper hospital, education, like a university, there's no university, there's no proper higher education in the region. And also very uh, important, of course, in light of the political uh, activism, the demilitarization of the region. So that was also a major demand. The region is, uh, since basically since independence, militarized in the sense that around Al-Husayma and the province of Al-Husayma, you could imagine, in a way, checkpoints and other sort of military facilities that sort of controls the movement of people coming in and out. And, of course, people living there have always, for generations, felt that their 
personal freedom and autonomy was undermined, that they were criminalized by the presence, of course, of a military uh, system. So that is also a major part of the demand. So it feels like a, an occupied territory, basically. Why is the Moroccan government doing this to the Reef region? Remind us a little bit of the history. Well, the history of Morocco in general is complex and interesting at the same time. The independence process was quite different from, for instance, the independence uh, that was experienced in Algeria, which was a revolutionary uh, project, uh, anti-colonial uh, in and out. The potential uh, for this to also occur in Morocco was very great because Morocco also had a resistance movement, an independence movement. But the presence of, for instance, a sultanate, a kind of dynasty, which then became also the kingdom, played a different role in the political power balances between the local sort of, you know, elites, governments and the colonizers. In Morocco, additionally, also the complexities can be found in the fact that it was colonized by two major imperial countries, namely Spain and France. Skip uh, the complex history and the French occupation uh, and focus on the north. The major interactions between the local resistance groups was with Spain because Spain occupied the north and what is globally referred to as the reef. The reef region had a quite uh, intense and heroic uh, history of resistance. Uh, many people who know the region and, and you know are interested in. Middle East or African politics know of the name Abdul Karim al-Khattabi, who was a famous anti-imperialist, anti-colonial figure who actually hit a dent in the Spanish colonizing presence. And they were almost basically defeated by local rebellion groups led by Abdul Karim al-Khattabi. This, you have to also understand, was on the one hand, of course, very heroic and, and important for the local people, but also was a warning to whoever may come in place of the colonizers, uh, whoever may be in charge of the country, that it's a region, a regional politics that they have to take into account. They have their own history and their own will, and they are able also to impose their will. And so people feel that they have been regarded as a thorn in the eye of the new upcoming national elites who wanted to control the country top down, including the north of the reef. And so that history of tension between regional politics and the central political system of Rabat has always been there. And so that feeling of isolation is both physical, the military presence in order to maintain uh, control and prevent any potential rebellion, but also the sense of isolation coming from the fact that they have been uh, regarded by many as a threat to the interests of the national uh, you could say the national bourgeoisie, the nationalist uh, component of the state. And that is uh, an unfinished business. It has been there for as long as independence, and it has not really been dealt with until recently. There have been some developments in the region in the north, investments in the coastal areas, uh, new marina, new sort of Port, not very important in, in all honesty, but it gives the people a feeling that the government is willing to invest, but um, it is mainly in, in the interests of a handful of, you could say, very rich investors. Local people do not benefit from any 
projects or infrastructures or investments. And basically what you see is what we've seen in many post-colonial situations where a sort of neoliberal capitalist injection is inserted in some place, but not for the sake of ordinary people's living standards. On the outside, things look like, oh, well, it has been developed and there's a lot of attention and goodwill. But once you scratch the surface, and that is what happened with the death of Mohsin Fikri, because it showed that people don't have any access to the fish, they aren't allowed to sell them. Those natural resources have been uh, monopolized and privatized and um, not for the benefit of the people themselves, but for big companies. Uh, so that is kind of, to cut a long story short, the, uh, the social, economic and political background of the current protest and continuation of the protest. Thank you for this panoramic summarizing of Morocco's modern history. It appears as if the reef, because of its independence and its history of resistance, is actually perceived as a threat by the monarchy more than anything else. And what you were briefly describing is this neo-colonial situation mm. where now the state is Moroccan, but the, the area of the reef still feels basically occupied and marginalized and suspected by the central government. After the protests that started last year, the king dismissed three ministers and various other officials over a lack of progress in the development plan for the reef. Is this just lip service or is the king trying to improve things? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point because it's so difficult to analyze this without any concrete, you know, tangible, empirical evidence or material. So there is a lot of, I wouldn't say lip service, but I would say like discourse. There is a lot of talk. There's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of, I don't know, maybe it is in some bizarre way, genuine disappointment and anger about how things have not been dealt with. But part of my own experience during the research I've been doing in the last five years has been to learn from the people I interview and who say, well, we don't believe this because this machzen, this system, is a combination of the national capitalist states, the intelligence services in which the monarchy is deeply involved. So it cannot be, realistically speaking, that certain major changes or, you know, deliberate uh, delays of certain improvements have occurred without anyone knowing. So no one really takes this serious. And some people even say, oh, these are crocodile tears because they are genuinely not in tune with the people and have been shocked and surprised themselves by the response and by the anger. But more than anything, I think by the determination, I think that no one expected the determination of the people would be so so long, so long-standing. So I think that is why sometimes they need to play different cards at the same time. Hence also the symbolic politics of going there physically, doing big, you know, PR events like the King's Speech and the large Arsh, the King's Day speech in that very locality. Symbols are important, right? If you say, oh, we don't like this region, we shun them, then you don't go anyway. But if you do go, you kind of want to say, we do like this region, we really respect you, and we want you to be part of our nation. 
At the same time, the people who've been asking for very normal, human, universal demands, who have done nothing against the law or criminal or what have you, should be released. And that has not been done, unfortunately. Uh, one positive thing is it seems that these protests are spreading nationwide. There were demonstrations in Rabat, I believe in Casablanca, back in June. Berber, Amazir, the correct term is Amazir, but that means Berber. Uh, Berber groups, leftist opposition parties, human rights groups, as well as the banned Islamist movement, Al-Hadr al-Ihsan, were present in these uh, demonstrations. Let's start first with the Berber language issue, which is common to all three countries of the Maghreb, North, uh, North Africa, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. How is the Berber or Amazigh language and culture issue connected, if at all, to the current unrest? Is that something that exacerbates this feeling of marginalization? We haven't yet mentioned that this uh, region is largely Berber-speaking, and that King Mohammed VI, when he came early on in his reign, had seemed to make some good moves or at least some noises in favor of Amazigh culture, at least on the surface. What is the state of Amazigh rights in Morocco and how does that influence this, this movement? Does it make it worse? Tell us a little bit how that, that's playing out. So there are different elements that push and pull these dynamics. The role of culture and the need to be acknowledged is, of course, one of them. And it's important, regionally speaking. And of course, I mean, you you know better than me, this has also been playing a role in Algeria and in other places. But I have to say that it is not unanimously equal in importance. The strength of the movement is that it's so diverse in its political demands and activists coming from different backgrounds, politically speaking, this Hirak, this movement that has been adopted by the name Hirak has been made up. Which in Arabic means means movement. It's the same word, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, really interesting how uh, across the uh, region uh, protests have been named Hirak. I mean, there's a Hirak in Jordan, there's a Hirak in Lebanon, and we have a Hirak in uh, Morocco. So, I mean, I've interviewed dozens of people and not all of them have the same motivation. So for them, the issue of Amazigh culture is an emotional one, but not really what mobilized them politically. For others, it's really basic social economic issues, and they are not really invested in the sort of cultural aspects. And that is partly because this has been, well, to put it, you know, simply partly dealt with in a previous period when the previous King Hassan II, who was sort of known as a much harsher, violent, dictatorial type of king, who really repressed people who were oppositional, whether they were leftist or culturally oppositional like Amazir. But once he deceased and a new king came up, the Muhammad VI, there had to be changes because with every new transformation, you need stability. One of the things that was on the agenda was the issue of the Amazigh language. So in the early 2000s, up until the mid-2000s, this was a very vibrant debate. And it actually resulted also in some changes. For instance, uh, you could have television programs that were aired in Amazigh, different dialects of Amazigh. Obviously, there were some newspapers that were 
in Amadeir it wasn't banned as it was before so in a way this was dealt with in a previous historical uh, moment but I mean one has to be careful with what it really means because representation is important but at the end of the day it's about the content right so people would say in retrospect well what we got was for instance yeah, another mouthpiece of the regime in another language. It wasn't really a major change in terms of our actual conditions and demands. So I think it's less prevalent as might seem from a distance for people who've been following the developments in Morocco and the Reef who kind of want to make too quick the link between Amazigh culture and peoples and the protest movement. However, as I said, Different motivations, different political agendas play a role. There are groups for whom this is a very important agenda, who really want to emphasize this cultural issue. But the regime also uh, understood this. And so one of the compromises, uh, one of the presents that uh, was offered after the major uprising 2016-17 was to acknowledge Amazir as an official, one of the official languages. I mean, you could say in an optimistic note that at least that is something that was a result of the protest, that it already achieved some results and that it is a language that is not just, you know, here and there present on television or radio, but is also acknowledged within the constitution as an official language. But in essence, I don't think that is really what motivated people to continue up until this day. Okay, so outside of Morocco, what has been the general attitude of major powers like France and the U.S. regarding the current unrest in the Reef? There are interesting discussions about a geopolitical aspect because obviously Morocco is an important ally of the West. It has been an ally against, well, what they particularly, I guess, the Americans and the Brits uh, call anti-terrorism. It has been an important ally also in the sort of normalization and spreading of a neoliberal policy. So it has adopted neoliberal policies since its own sort of uh, state economic rule, but also it is involved with all kinds of international, multinational dealings and wheelings. Uh, and so, as we know, this makes it... Uh, less likely that many of the Western countries that are uh, good friends and its allies to speak out very harshly or critically against the states. And interestingly, the discussion is now becoming more and more tense in the countries that also have a lot of Moroccans, uh, you know, diasporic Moroccans. And you can think of the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, France, Spain, where people are actively involved in all kinds of solidarity campaigns and protests. And in the Netherlands, where I am at the moment, one of the political protests just in the recent days was organized against the Ministry of Justice, who had a meeting with the Moroccan Ministry of Justice, sort of a picket protest to demand the Dutch uh, government to speak out against the injustice and to, you know, break its ties. But the result is really interesting because in this case, whereas the Netherlands is internationally known as progressive and really always defends and promotes international human rights, has said, uh, well, we don't want to mingle in internal affairs. Mm. These are 
Moroccan internal affairs that we should not, uh, it would be wrong to tell them what to do. Well, we've, of course, uh, seen the opposite in many other cases, so nobody really takes this very serious, but if there is something we can learn from this, it is the fact that countries that need each other for all kinds of reasons, I mean, the Netherlands, it is because of the relationship with the country in order to talk about, deal with migration. Morocco is a kind of fort Europe, you could say, outside of Europe. It's the border almost between the continent of Africa and Europe. So it is very important to keep them as friends in order to sort of, you know, do that uh, thing that Trump loves so much to build walls and fences and all that kind of stuff in order to prevent people migrating to Europe, but also in order to have a sort of stable, positive relationship with the country in order to talk about and deal with issues related to its own Dutch Moroccan citizens. So interests at the end of the day are very important and much more important than principles. National interest. Traditionally, speaking of Trump, traditionally the bond between Morocco and the U.S. has been one of alliance and even fealty, uh, apparently, yeah. in some cases. If I'm not mistaken, Moroccan crown was the first foreign government to recognize yeah. the U.S. when it became yeah. independent. Yeah. How yeah. is Trump's overt Islamophobia and outspoken contempt for the Palestinians affecting the U.S.'s cozy relationship with the Mahzen. Apart from Trump, which I think I would like to also know more about, what is interesting is, I don't know if we spoke the last time before the elections or after the election. No, elections. it was after the election. But right. I didn't ask you okay. about the Trump. Is there any, any lip service, at least against uh, some well, of the, the more extreme... Well, the reason I'm asking you about the elections is because <laughs> the Moroccans had invested enormously in its friendship and its money in Hillary Clinton. So they had a really close relationship with the Clintons. And I think no one expected Trump to win the election. So I think it's been a long period of readjustment, of confusion, confusion and adjusting to this new situation. And dealing with a person that is so vocally anti a lot of the things you actually represent yourself is entertaining, to put it mildly. So I think this confusing rearrangement is still going on. The contradictions are there. So Trump would say something that would go against the Moroccan uh, interests. But at the same time, in the background, a lot of the official military economic agreements and dealings are continuing, are ongoing, are untouched really by the presence of Trump. So I think with a lot of countries in the world, uh, you have seen this, that things in a way have continued in terms of relationships with the United States, despite the aberration in the form of Trump. And I think this is also the case for Morocco. I know that the population, at least, Moroccan people, very strongly sympathize with the, the Palestinians. And which is not the case here in, you know, U.S. government is definitely, especially more than ever, pro-Israel yeah. in, in ways that are both substantial and symbolic. Ever since the days of Hassan II and the early 60s, Morocco has always collaborated with Israel behind the scenes, hope, uh, helping move its very large Jewish population to immigrate to Israel, occupied Palestine. How is the relationship evolving under Trump? And I know I've already asked this, but this is especially emotional and tender mm. point for the people of Morocco. Now mm. that Trump and Adelson, Kushner are going in all the symbolic ways, not just substantial, mm. but symbolically mm. 
repudiating all efforts of peace and, and all uh, window dressing. No, I mean, historically, Morocco, Moroccans have a very emotionally, politically close bond with Palestine. Many, many people consider the Palestinian cause a national cause. They don't consider it a foreign cause that deserves some solidarity here and there, but they really dis- consider it, uh, they say, they see it as their cause, that they are an extension of the Palestinians, are extension of them, you know. So it's very deep and emotional. And when there are international demonstrations or because of an invasion by Israel, the protests in Morocco are usually enormous. Um, the state kind of allows that because it also knows that this is very deep. And when it doesn't allow it, it causes uh, confrontations and clashes. Sometimes it can't allow these expressions of solidarity and protest uh, to be ongoing on the street because protests are always risky for any regime or state because it can always involve other demands and, and turn into something else, right? With Trump, I feel like the whole world, but also Morocco, has already been going through a period of almost numbness because of the extreme measures and right-wing turn in Israel and the fact that the international community has done little to nothing to defend and protect the Palestinians. It means that also people got kind of like numbed and used to the fact that they are left on their own. And they say that, they say, Masakin, may God carry them. They are really left on their own. So with Trump, it kind of confirms all of that, right? That that the whole debate about the move to the embassy, to Jerusalem, had caused the rage in Morocco. And the decision to then do it led to one of the biggest demonstrations uh, in Morocco recently. So I think it is one of the sensitive issues for the Moroccan regime, regimes. They can't really publicly support or condone Trump in any of its Palestine-related, how do you call it? You can't even say policy or expressions. It's kind of like flip-flop, crazy utterances. At the same time, the Moroccan people are not stupid. They have also knowledge of their own history, and they also know officially the role of Morocco in sort of assisting, you could say, now and then the Israeli state. It is a kind of known secret, a shameful one. People also talk about it with shame and regret. So people are also not naive. They also understand that their own regimes are part of an international network of regimes with different interests. And so, you know, they know that sometimes Morocco invites Israeli politicians or companies and what have you. So there are these sort of movements now in Morocco that are growing against normalization and in particular BDS. So there is a Morocco BDS campaign. Boycott, divestment and sanctions. To put this on the agenda precisely because Morocco is a peculiar one when it comes to Palestine. But I I think, again, so much is going on in Morocco, on (laughs) Iraq and other things, 
that the main issues are not the ones they were 10, 15 years ago after the revolutions. There are so many other issues and, and cases that are sort of overshadowing or overwhelming the kind of political compass that we used to know. And so Palestine is also one of many issues and causes, uh, albeit a very, very on an emotional level, a very special one that doesn't allow the regime to be too blunt and also maintains its privileged position as the council, the head of the council of Al-Quds. Uh, Morocco is the officially the sort of symbolic head of the the Jerusalem uh, Al-Quds uh, committee. And so they would, you know, emphasize this from time to time. They would organize conferences in order to sort of still, I wouldn't say capitalize, but I would say promote the idea that Morocco is also there for the Palestinians. But I think a lot of people consider that really lip service. And Palestinians actually told me so themselves in Jerusalem. They would tell me, oh, well, you're from Morocco. I'll tell your king we really don't need his free bread. So let him do other things. This brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. We're dealing with a seriously neocolonial power at least at the state level, not at the popular level. Well, Miriam, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we have to go now. Uh, Thank you very much again, Miriam. You're most welcome. Take care. Slama. Take care. Slama. Miriam Aurag Asfar is a senior lecturer at the University of Westminster in London. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. What do kids in Gaza share with kids in the Bay Area? That's coming up next. Et 
enfants dans ton dos se sont mis tôt. Last January, Heather Lamastro, a Bay Area-based activist and a teacher, embarked on a life-changing project. She started a pen pal project connecting kids in her school with kids in Gaza. In August, she traveled to Gaza on a humanitarian mission where she also visited with kids in her pen pal program. This was my first time to the Middle East, actually. I bought a ticket not knowing if I was going to be granted access to Gaza, but I still felt like I needed to go just to see what life is like there. It started because I started a pen pal project with my students that I work with after school. And, um, and when was that? I reached out to an organization in January, got an answer right away that they would love to connect my students with children who are in cancer care in Bethlehem. And uh, so in February, they wrote their first letters and instantly, within a few days, I received letters of children in Gaza on the floor with pen and paper with letters and pictures of my students writing us back and smiling. And the organization was the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, which was founded in 1991 in the U.S. to address the medical needs of children in the Middle East. And they work all over the region, including Gaza. Yes. What this PinPal project intended to do? For me, I felt like... There's a need to connect people over a great divide. I work with children, so what better people to connect with other people but children who don't really understand the politics of all this? Because it's even hard for adults to understand the politics of the Middle East, the politics of Israel and with the United States backing them up and all the things that happen there. They don't, they don't really get it as best as I've tried to lightly and delicately explain a divide. They don't get it. They don't really seem to care so much. They're just like happy to know that there are children that live through hard things that they can connect to. I think they feel very proud of that. Mm. They haven't used those words, but I can tell because they're always talking about their friends in Gaza. All the time they're talking about their friends in Gaza. I have a few students who say to me all the time that they want to they want a kofia. They want to wear it. They love my scarf. I wear it every day. How old are these kids? <clears throat> they're in 4th and 5th grade. Oh. So they're they're still kind of young. So when this letter writing campaign, this friendship by mail began, what was it that you wanted them to write or what did they want to write and how did they want to connect to the kids in Gaza? What kind of letters did they receive from their friends in Gaza? Their letters are actually really simple. Their letters, you know, some of them didn't know what to write. Like, what do I tell somebody? I tell somebody everything about you that you have to introduce yourself. So they, of course, you know, said where they live, um, their age, what school they go to, their favorite subject, their favorite food, what they want to be when they grow up. Um, and that's exactly what they got back. Um and from the very first letter, I could see so many similarities. I have two. I have a student who wants to be an architect, and there's a boy there who wants to be an architect. Mm-hmm. So you could see the differences. Um, 
So each kid here wrote to a specific kid over there, well, or it was just a no. letter that was just sent out, and different kids received them. I basically, I took a photo of each child, had them make like a little name placard and design it and draw it, make it colorful, and put a letter with each photo and just sent it. And then they specifically got, each one got a letter back from a different child. Mm-hmm. Most of the children were in Gaza, a few of them were in pediatric cancer care in the West Bank. The children in Gaza, though, I feel like we couldn't have connected with better pen pals. Um, those children in Gaza are working with social workers to have group therapy sessions to help with their PTSD because of where they live and obviously the, the constant uh, violence and the bombings and stuff. So for them, I think it helps them to know that children that are so far away from them who have very different lives are thinking about them and that they have the experience to share with them you know, what their dreams are and their hopes are for the future. So when you went to Gaza, you said that you had to obtain um, entry permit. Yes. You know, after my relationship with the PCRF had progressed to a certain point, I asked the president, Steve Sosaby, I said, look, I, I would really love to go there. This is the Palestine <clears throat> Children's Relief Fund. Yes, the president of that organization. I asked him, um, you know, how do I go about doing this? Who should I contact? What's the possibility? And he said to me, you know, ultimately, it's up to the government. It's not up to me. It's not up to anybody else. So we can see if we can apply for a permit and you can be there and work for us. Um, and so that's what we did. So I, you know, filled out the, the um, application. They finished it and they sent it. Um, and it took about eight weeks to get approval. Um, and I was really pleasantly surprised when I was told that I was going to be able to go. Can you tell us a bit about what you did once you entered Gaza? Yeah. So immediately, uh, my first day there, there is uh, Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. And the PCRF has raised millions of dollars to build a pediatric cancer unit onto the hospital. It just opened now. When I was there, it was about to be open. So when I was there, I got um, a tour from a representative of the Palestinian Ministry of Health, the lead architect, the lead engineer, who showed me around the hospital to see what it would look like when it would open. Pretty amazing. They make their own chemotherapy there. They have a beautiful nursery. So I was able to see where the children would be. And it was nice because the hospital itself, I said, wow, this is an old hospital. And they laughed and said, this is one of our best hospitals, but it just looks so antiquated until you walk into the pediatric cancer unit. So I was able to visit um, that facility. And then I visited three or four groups of children. I visited the pen pals of my students. And I also visited uh, the Jabalia refugee camp, which is the largest refugee camp in the Gaza Strip. It's interesting because I asked them after talking with them for a while, I said, what would you like your pen pals to know about you? And the first thing they said, and they all said this, was that they live under constant siege. So they're constantly experiencing bombs, hearing bombs. And the second thing they wanted them to know is that they don't have any place for recreation. They don't have parks. They don't have play structures, soccer fields. They don't have swimming pools, athletic facilities. And then at that point, their social worker told me that they spend a lot of time at home. So when they're not at school, they're at home. So they don't have that ability. You know, where I work, the children have a playground to their access every day. You know, they get to us, and the first thing they say, a lot of them, can we go outside? Can we go outside and play? after being cooped up indoors all day at school. So they don't have that. And it's very clear to see when you're there 
that there aren't a lot of facilities for children. But as far as the people, I mean, Gaza itself is very dirty. You know, I think when you're living under a blockade and it creates a greater situation of poverty, the last thing you're thinking about is trash. And um, their water facilities have been yeah. bombed significantly through the years. So you see... And the underground water <coughs> aquifers are all polluted. Yeah. And so they have actually what look like gas trucks, like tankers, mm. that deliver water. And you see them all the time on the road, people getting water. So that is something that is... I've never seen that anywhere in the world. So there's the water issue, there's the trash issue, the pollution issue. Um, even the water off the coast, I asked um, my field escort when I was there, do you eat the fish? And he said, no, I won't eat the fish from here. But yet my translator said, oh, I eat it. It's, it's no problem. I don't mind it. So there is that awareness, too, that the water is polluted. So even though you see lots of fishermen off the coast there, there's some people who just don't want to mess with that. I spoke with uh, someone, I interviewed someone in Gaza, and she told me that they have to use the city water to water their plants and vegetable gardens. You know, that's polluted water, so they don't know what kind of toxic chemicals are going to be in the fruits and vegetables that they will be eating. Yeah, and, you know, and food is a problem for them, too, because their lives are completely controlled by an oppressive state, an oppressive government that um, has them under this blockade for you know, over 10 years now. Before I was going, there was um, a bomb that was dropped four blocks from my hotel. Still, I wasn't scared. I was very excited to be there with them. And it was quiet. There was a negotiation of a ceasefire that they were working on. Um, it didn't work. And four days after I left, there were bombings. And I was actually texting with my friends in Gaza, knowing that this was happening. I didn't bring it up because I just wanted to see how they were. And I will never forget being in a conversation with uh, my friend, and he said, my house just shook, I think we're at war. And so this is kind of like what they live through all mm -hmm. the time. But I have to say, they're so optimistic. When I was at the Jabalia refugee camp, when I was going, I was mentally preparing myself for being visibly shaken and, and for being upset. And from like the moment we got out of the car, we were actually laughing and we laughed the entire time we were there, which I really didn't expect. And the energy from the children, I was followed by an army of children from basically the second I got out of the car, people were staring at me, um, couldn't take their eyes off of me, slowly followed me. I got invited to do a home visit with someone and was sitting with them for a minute. And I saw that there were four children at the door, the open door, peeking in at me really curious, like, who is this woman and why is she here? And then as I continued through the camp, they were all around me saying, hello, hello, how are you? And then I got approached by this really loud voice and says, oh, hi, how are you? Are you a doctor? What are you doing here? Because um, usually it's doctors and journalists that are there. And some sometimes, you know, international workers with uh, with uh, humanitarian organizations. And um, he was talking to me, oh, I used to live in London. I have a British passport, too. You know, uh, do you want to come down to my house for tea? And it was like 92 degrees out. And of course, I said, yes, I would love to come down to your house for tea. And we sat in the alley outside the house. And I wish we could have spoken longer, but we, we were, you know, maybe six feet from each other, and it got to the point where it was hard to hear. You were surrounded by kindness. Yes. And the children, their energy was just mm. so 
exciting and they were talking as we were talking and and um but it was interesting to hear him say i I said um you know do you think are you optimistic that things will get better when a boss retires and he said yes absolutely i think that that the factions you know the government the the political factions in in gaza will shake hands and like brothers and will come to a sort of understanding as to how they can make things better but I, and then I said, do you think the blockade will be lifted? Because for me, as someone whose heart really is there with those people, that's the biggest concern to me is when is this blockade going to be lifted? That's the first thing that needs to happen. And um, he said, yes, I do think the blockade is going to be lifted, which I thought was really, really optimistic because I don't see that happening because they're constantly having breakdowns and negotiations with the Israeli government, but just their optimism. I mean, uh, they 40 bombs were dropped. It was like the second week in August and, you know, caused a lot of destruction. And there is a, there was a cultural arts center there named after Edward yeah. Said, and it was flattened. Yeah. It was, compl- I mean, it just turned into a big pile of rubble. And the people, what did they do in response to that? They brought instruments to the pile and they made music. They made an impromptu concert on top of this pile of rubble. So their optimism is just Mm -hmm. like amazing, amazing. On the other hand, the wars on Gaza, the the decade-old blockade on Gaza has had devastating impacts on the mental and physical health of children. You visited a hospital in Gaza. What were some of the major physical and mental and emotional problems that kids in Gaza are suffering from and are carrying with them? What did you see? Yeah, I visited the cancer unit, which was not open yet. So I didn't actually visit with patients when I was in Gaza. The children that I did visit with were the children that were in several facilities all over Gaza. The PCRF, I believe, has six offices in the Gaza Strip. So they have different um, organizations that they partner with, and then they have their own facilities where children... Is it like a clinic? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. And they come and work with other children in, in the group setting. So I couldn't see anything physical with these children. And I just, you know, learned from them about what their lives are like and what they see. So for me, I felt like when we're singing and dancing, I see happy children. But to hear, you know, children say, like, I live in in the besieged city of Rafa, or I live in besieged Gaza, that's that's what they have in their head, is that, hey, we, we have this war all the time. And, and I think that is extremely difficult for anybody, a child or an adult, to deal with. Just according to Gaza Ministry of Health last Friday, uh, this is part of uh, Friday protest at the border with Israel. Seven Palestinian children died after being shot by Israeli soldiers, and a total of 252 people were injured, 154 of them by live fire. This is according to the Ministry of Health. So this is an ongoing issue for them, even the physical violence. It's yes. not something yes. that happens when there is a war. Why did you want to focus on this specific type of activism? And what do you want to do with all the information you've gathered, with being a witness, with hearing testimonies of people? What is it that you want to do with all of this information as an American? That's a great question. Um, For me, you know, I grew up in New York, and New York is extremely Zionist, extremely Zionist. And... I remember when um, 
I came here, I felt like it's a lot more open and people are very... Here meaning the Bay Area. Yes. And people are more interested in having dialogue and conversation around things. And so I felt like very upset when I heard a few people in my community say to me in Berkeley, California, when I mentioned Palestine or Palestinian children or the UN report that said that Israel um, detains, uh, arrests, and imprisons children at a higher rate than any other nation, when I would say that sometimes to people, I found them saying very close-minded things to me. And what I heard more often than other things was they teach their children to hate. And I would think to myself, but have you ever met their children? Do you know who they are? Do you know what's in their hearts? So for me, this was the opportunity to show that you don't know people if you haven't sat with them, you haven't spoken to them. So I felt like it was a good opportunity for children to know what's in the hearts of other children and that that was important to bridge a divide and to give a generation that doesn't know any politics. They're too young to know politics so that they can see what's in the hearts of other people and maybe grow up not believing that kind of rhetoric that they might hear from people around them. So you're thinking of expanding this Pin Pal project? I would love to. I would love to expand this project. I know that the children really love it. They really, really, really love it. They talk to me about it more than I talk to them about it, which is really um, interesting for me. But also, you know, just having the opportunity to speak about it on the radio is also something that's important to me. Because when I would speak to adults about their political views or about their life, I would always ask them, do I have your permission to speak on this, to speak on your behalf and tell people what you're thinking and what you're feeling? And of course, they said, yes, absolutely, because they don't really have a voice. They really don't. And, you know, we'll see. It would be wonderful to make a documentary just to show how similar these children's lives are, but Mm. how different at the same time. But Because what I saw was that for the most part, what's in their hearts is the same exact thing. They want to be safe. They want to grow up and be successful. They want to get a good education. And they want to do things to make their families proud. You know, and and that's that's so universal. That's so universal, regardless of your uh, of your political views. You know, I just want us to end with you maybe talking about a couple of the letters that these kids, they have written to each other. Yeah. Most of them were basically just stating facts to each other about their lives, what their families like, how many siblings they have. Some of them have an incredible amount of siblings in Gaza. And a few children, you know, one of my students, he's very emotional. He's, he's a deep thinker. And he mentioned, you know, he loves to travel. And he says, you know, war's so bad and it's we have to stop wars in the world and we have to care for the animals and we have to care for the earth. And then he says, I hope one day I can meet you and we will have fun and that we will get along. And it was interesting because the child that wrote him back did mention how bad the situation is there and said, you know, this is, it's really tough. The situation is very bad. They won't let us go to the sea, but maybe after we have peace, we can go to the sea. And I think they didn't contemplate that. They're like, they can't go to the beach. You know, they can't do these things. So a few children did mention that, that like life is tough here and we experience a lot of intense things. But overall, it just, you know, for them to hear, to hear them say what they want to be when they grow up. Heather Lamastro is a Bay Area-based activist and a school teacher who started a pen pal project between kids in her school and kids in Gaza. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.